702 Afternoons with Rilebogile Mabuta. Live, online, smartphones, the 702 app, DSTV channel 856, 92.7 and 106 FM. 702. Food feature. Food feature time. And uh, all I can say is usually um, when we have the food feature, we come on in, we are stuffed, like stuffed. We've been eating. Yo. Today, it was like rush from the airport and because of the rush, hot and sweaty and got greeted by the most delicious ice cream. And I'm not done sampling all of it. And I'm so, so excited. But I'd like to introduce all of you to Tabiwa Guza, who is the founder of Tabi Tabi and African Indulgence. Tabiwa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Listen, you firstly, your voice is so amazing. <laughs> I don't know if that's <laughs> a sign that the food is great or not great, but you should consider radio one of these days. Um, t- talk to us very quickly about how you got introduced to the food to food in general and when it became a love that you're like i i need to make money here <laughs> i grew up in a household where we grew our own food a lot mm. so you used to grow your own things consume your own things and so food through the whole cycle of planting it or rearing the animal into death and consumption is so this like in semi is or these like semi-rural areas where that was just how you were living or it was not rural but it was very intentional that food be grown there. I would say it was an urban homestead. Yes. That is such an oxymoron to say, but it was urban in the city, but very like rural uh, values and roots. Yes. Yeah. You know what urban homestead sounds like? It sounds like we're the third wife of a chief lives. <laughs> <laughs> it's an urban homestead. The younger generation. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so, so what, what was so important as a family that those were some of the principles and values that you chose to live by was that just what everybody was doing because if the homestead is urban it's not as easy as how many grew up you know mm. and mm. i think my grandmother was central to that and in fact all our elders in general had a strong value around community and communal effort there was no ideas around individualism so we grew up as a unit and the unit moves together succeeds or fails together and so i think just speaks back to a different time compared to like where we are now in the world where everything's about me 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 the individual yes those people yes. just grew up being together okay yeah. okay and 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 i must say it, we're living in an interesting time where we're all trying to get back to that space mm. of you know organic and the homegrown and um we we see the prices at the at the retail place we're like yo how can i actually grow a food on my own mm. at home and know what's been put into it so let's then fast forward to to there's the part of the produce that this is what you're doing at home what started getting you interested in what's happening in the kitchen uh, I've always had a sweet tooth and to guarantee that uh, desire was met I always used to make my own cakes with my grandma when I was young yes um, and we ate a lot of wild foods as well from Zimbabwe because I grew up in Zimbabwe. Um, but moving into the kitchen mostly happened when I moved to Varsity, yes. to UCT, a few, almost two decades ago. Yes. And I had to cook for myself as a bachelor. So that's when I really got to flex myself in the kitchen and try different cuisines and different cooking techniques from around the world until I finally narrowed my focus down to continental food and Ooh. home food. Yeah. 
what does continental food mean? I feel like mm. as South Africans, we are accustomed to continental breakfast. And that's like... <laughs> The ham, little cold meats, little <laughs> cheese, and the, I never choose continental. But you know, at a hotel yeah. when you can, I never choose that one. That's my choice. <laughs> <laughs> You're cold hearted if you go for that one. <laughs> I, I, I'm an English breakfast type uh, of person. But what do we mean by 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 continental cuisine? So I'm, I'm talking about the many different cuisines we have around the continent of Africa. Um, we don't think about African food as this expansive word. We think yes. about this very reductive term as mm. if we all make the same kind of food all the time. Of course, we don't. Um, so I'm really And thank interested. you for saying that. Mm. I, I, I know that it's not just the Western understanding. Even mm. South Africans and people that live on the continent, mm. we don't even realize how many different versions of pub or maize you can hey. get on the continent. Never mind the continent, even in South Africa itself. I can look at something and this, this looks like pedi food, this looks like tonga food, this looks like yes. shangani food, yes. kosa food. But we tend to reduce South African food to seven colors, dombolo, umlekwa, kota. And it's a very fine window of what yes. it means to make South African food. But each tribe has got its own cuisines, mm. you know. Um, so that word is a bit of a loaded word to say African food and continental food because it means so many different things to different people. Yes. Even like biryani in Cape Town versus biryani in Durban are two different biryanis. Right? Yo, and there's, a, there's a hierarchy there. <laughs> <laughs> They'll say the bunny chow here yeah, is exactly. better than the bunny chow there. <laughs> so, so you've explored all these cuisines and, and, and I'm assuming your palate just got extremely curious once you, you started to taste things outside of the home. Um, who was the person in the home that you would say was your biggest influence in your approach to food? Ultimately, I would say we are all responsible for cooking for ourselves. You know, with this generation, the older you get, the more responsibility you got. So sounds like every brown household, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, in in my context, there wasn't that obvious division of gender labor as well. So yes. everybody in the house was expected to cook and in fact most of my uncles on my grandmother's on my mother's side yes. are really good cooks for that reason yes. um, so that household kind of fostered everybody to get involved in either feeding the rabbits the chickens harvesting the maize or the okra but also cooking the food and yes. chopping firewood everybody did kind of everything mm. Mm. so there's no one specific reason why it was just like the ecosystem fostered that kind of mindset and the kind of uh, necessity to coexist with other human beings as a fuller human being versus this is my little division of labor section i don't mm. do any of this other women's stuff over here and i I, yeah. I absolutely love that you say that you know being a mom raising a son mm. and having grown up also at my grandmother's house there was no boys do this and girls it actually alternated okay today's boys night for cleanup duty but everybody mm. did everything um um it's still interesting when you look at the fact that there are more male chefs in the world, mm. but the women are still reared to be the ones from when they're little girls to be in the kitchen. I was saying earlier on to my sister that I need to buy my son a kitchen set because he yeah. loves food so yeah. much. And he's started mimicking, mixing, say, so he's saying, you know, I'm cooking mommy. Mm. And then it's, it becomes obviously that thing of we are very concerned about perceptions and identities mm. around gender. And um, I find it interesting just that it does become a thing mm. and that there are maybe little boys who might get left out of exploring the kitchen and their mm. culinary skills because it becomes those are things for for girls yeah for sure what made you then say okay i guys i need to do this thing for myself 
So I'd been uh, working at Stellenbosch University for like five years, uh, doing a postdoc in science. And in that time, I was re- recognized that my work was, in a way, actively colonizing African identities. Mm. So I was working with uh, making GMOs of plants that are from South America to grow better in an Ooh. African context. And I realized I was participating in the current colonial erasure of African identity. So instead of working on millet or sorghum or fonio or teff, I was working on sugarcane and potato and tobacco, maize, things that are Central and South American. So at some point I just kind of cracked and I'm like, but why is so much of what we do anti-African, including an African myself, mm. not only these institutions, but my day-to-day practice mm. involved so much of silencing my identity or sanitizing my identity or mm. trying to appeal to a different sensibility or aspire to be something that mm. I'm not, you know, like going for the basmati or the free range organic blah 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 as opposed to morocho and whatever the things that we but you know what's interesting mm. there's not many people because i think once you're exposed um and you become aware mm. you're unable to unsee what you now have seen but for me just listening to you speak i'm like but basmati imunate like <laughs> when you make this true it just mm. holds nice mm. on basmati there isn't that part of me that is thinking Oh, I need to be conscious about our own grains and why am I not prioritizing stampa over mm. this? Mm. So knowing what you know mm. and knowing the average South African who just eats what they like, mm. what do you think we should take into consideration when we are selective about, you know, what we are choosing and buying? So the, the reality is money is going to always talk, right? Mm. In the way we live now. So if we're not creating a demand for certain fruits, for certain produce, for certain vegetables, certain cuisines, mm. the industries don't respond. They just maintain the status quo. Right? Yes. So if yes. you want more sorghum to be available more cheaply, more regularly like in restaurants, in supermarkets, in yes. markets, you need to be asking the people who sell food. If you go into a pizza shop today, oh, why don't you don't have some local toppings on your pizza? If you walk yes. into pick and pay, I've got a whole aisle full of like monster and Doritos and blah, blah, mm. blah. But to find like the African section is like very rare thing, right? But and that's because we're not voicing our issues mm. um, readily. Mm. Um, and so people say, oh, there's no market for it. Of which there is a market, but the market is not vocal. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I, I encourage people to be very vocal about ensuring people transform their spaces into reflect where we live. Because yes. we're Africans, but for the most part, we eat like Europeans. So what's quite, uh, I would even say we eat more like Americans than Mm. Europeans. Mm. We're very Americanized. But just thinking about what you're saying, um, there's a delivery app, and I don't know if it is here in the Western Cape. I know at some point it was. It's called Zulzi, Mm. and they do groceries. But what I love about it is they specifically have a section called Shop Local. Mm. And then I discovered they even do Mopani Mm. Worms, uh, snacks. Mm. So not just the dried ones, they also do chips that are part corn, part masonja. Mm. And I thought, brilliant, I'm gonna start buying this. But it becomes this exclusive thing which is a little bit expensive. Mm. What don't we know about? Because the person will say, yeah, but to get these things, which are even our own things, is more expensive than buying Doritos. Mm. It's true. It's true. And, and the, the system is rigged to function that way, right? Um, 
there's a reason why colonize, colonizers change the foodscape. Yes. You erase people's identities, identities very easily if you change their food and yes. what they produce. Right. So it's not, it's not light work. It's not easy work. And it's something we have to insist and fight for. And those of us who can afford to make that sacrifice for the greater cause need to do it as early adapters or adopters to allow environment for one day to become cheaper for everybody else to be able to easily access these things. Yes. We can't all say, well, I can't afford it either. Right? Mm. As pure, I know I can do my part in this particular format mm. and someone else can do their part in that. It's not to say everybody must now just shift to black food. That's not realistic. Yeah. No, and right. also realistically, mm. I mean, when you are a company as big as a manufacturer like Simba, mm. you can afford to sell your chips at X amount. Mm. But when you're just saying you know what i'm passionate now you're thinking about the costs of driving this delivering from limpopo who your supplier is then it needs to be spiced then there's the packaging then there's the branding and these are just little businesses that are basically um trying to survive mm. and i think my personal cause now that i'm like oh my gosh there's so many interesting local brands um a few weeks ago we were talking to two local uh, coffee uh, uh, brands that just go out of their way to do the sustainable they go up into the rest of the continent mm. and their things can be pricier but those that can um, afford and have the privilege to say I'm going to support here I think that's the responsible thing to do. Let, let's now talk African indulgence mm. um, and and what the vision was behind that. I mean you clearly have a wealth of knowledge around food where it comes from but also the political and socio-economic aspects that influence how we are eating and um, this is the most um deep feed food feature i've ever had and i'm absolutely loving it but chat to me about african indulgence that now you have all that knowledge and and now we're like okay he's woke he's trying to um um push a very specific intentional agenda of of promoting what what we are known for um what is african indulgence all about in terms of tabi tabi so we started Tapi Tapi as, as an educational space that happens to use food to have that conversation around education. And um, I chose ice cream because I've always loved ice cream for myself. And it seems so obvious now, if you know the amount of grains and leaves and flowers and fruits and produce we have on the continent, why is it that you struggle to find a single African flavor of ice cream across the continent? It's very difficult to achieve that. I've never thought of right. that. Yeah, it's so difficult. But beyond that... This is true of any industry that we have. It is very difficult to eat black unless you're making food for yourself or to eat African unless you're making food for yourself. It's very difficult. But you see, if mm. you're saying to me African-flavored ice cream, Mm. I'm assuming these are things that are naturally from SA, like, for Mm. example, rooibos. Not necessarily. So this is what I did. That's what's fascinating about identity. So uh, like the flavors I brought today, some flavors will make celebrate producers from here. Some flavors will make celebrate celebrate produce from here that we think is from elsewhere like tamarind we think is indian but tamarind is from tanzania so it's on the menu for, for real yeah so it's about reclamation of space mm. and some products are just to say this combination of ingredients is truly cape Townian or south african but the individual ingredients have nothing to do with this continent so like i if, got you if you take like uh maguinha yes nothing about maguinha is African, for which is not from here. Mm. That kind of oil we use is not from here. I think sunflowers mm. from South America. But to make maguinha, that's a very unique thing. Together, yes. right? Or a kusista or I don't know, whatever you want to call it, really. Um, milk tart, 
Can, you know. can we talk about this ice cream that I'm tasting that's got the chai flavors? Um, tell me the name and what it's got in it. So you got a chai masala one uh, mm. that's inspired by Kenyan chai masala. And the Kenyans have Guys, a long it's history. it's so good. It's got milk tart vibes. <laughs> it's, if you like chai latte, it's also mm. got that. And it's not, you'd think the flavors could be overpowering, but they're not at mm. all. Oh, this, this is nice because it's paired with coconut. Mm. Uh, and this is a nice example of an idea of something that we think of as Indian. But it came to Eastern Africa via Indian and Arabic influence. It's now synonymous with Kenyan identity. So black Kenyans identify with chai uh, because it's part of their life, because it's such a long-term legacy. Yes. Whereas something like, um, what else do we have here? In the other one, this white one here, mm -hmm. that's a grain called fonio from West Africa together with impepo smoke. Right, so both what? those things... Wait, say that again. <laughs> <laughs> say that again. So... Fonio is a grain from West Africa um, and it's paired together with impepo smoke. And the reason. Wow, it is smoky. Yeah, it's actually smoked. And the reason what? for that is because I grew up eating fire cooked food, as mm. many of us did. So if you think about our universal seasoning as people who cook with fire, it's smoke. So the idea of a vanilla base doesn't exist at Tapi Tapi. Our smoke is our base. And we use different plants to smoke different flavors. This happens to be in purple smoke, which of course ties in with South African culture a lot. It's People so hard really to explain what this tastes like because the flavor is so unique. Mm. It like, I almost feel like I'm, I'm about to, it, at the beginning, it's like I'm about to be eating barbecue ribs, mm. but then it's not It's kind of like bacon with maple syrup, right? Yeah. Like savory sweets. I'm mm. not sure exactly where I'm playing. And but a bit of texture from the grain as well. Mm. Look, mm. I, I, I like it. I think... Mm. It might be an acquired taste for some people because mm. it's so it's unexpected. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I absolutely love the story be behind what you're saying about the smoke. And let's talk about the other two flavors that you've got here. Uh, then this one, uh, this is the one of the reclamation projects. So, so that's tamarind uh, and sour fig jam. So sour figs are wild fruit from the southern part of the continent, mm -hmm. it's especially popular in Cape Town, the Western Cape. So it's a very sour fruit, and I pair that with tamarind as well. So it's what? like fresh and zesty and fruity. <laughs> Sits in your cheeks, right? You know, the problem is I didn't do a palate cleanse in between. So it's got, it kind of reminds me of some fruit that I used to eat on my mm. grandmother's farm growing up. But mm -hmm. I can't say which one. It's got... Um, which part of the country? No, it, it, it's, it's in Gauteng. Mm. Um, but it's got that almost so what she used to do she used to have like peaches and guavas and things like that that mm. she would um you know jar and syrup yeah so it kind of reminds me of that, of that thing no yes mm. i don't know in what way like some of these are not flavors i'm tasting memories mm. that's exactly <laughs> it that's exactly you hit on a very good point there so we are really passionate about evoking feeling and nostalgia and a sense of identity within people so as as a person Who's never had this ice cream? It's too hitting something you know, mm. you know, and that's very rare for us as black people. If you walk into an African into an ice cream cafe around the city, you're gonna have pistachio, chocolate, strawberry, whatever. Yes, it will taste delicious. Maybe it will remind you of a specific childhood memory if you have an association with that. But it's not touching your entire core, your entire identity. If you're someone yes. who grew up in Cape Town and I give you a Ku sister ice cream or a yes. Buba ice cream yes. or like Diwali sweet meats, you know, mm. if you're Indian descent, that's a very specific memory set that has never been seen before by another ice cream shop right and across other donut shops yes uh whatever you want to call it chocolate shops they don't necessarily think about our identities as a forefront listen i, I feel like you and i could be 
talking for hours and having a young master class <laughs> on flavors. Uh, where can we find you on the socials and where can we find um, your spot? On the socials, on Instagram, we are underscore tapi, underscore tapi, that's T-A-P-I. Uh, and if you just Google tapi, in fact, if you just Google African ice cream, we'll show up with the only one. That's what's nice about it, at least. Listen, <laughs> this is so, us. so delicious. And what an absolute treat to just get to be exposed to flavors we're not accustomed to. So I would I'd encourage everybody to, to come through. And then my wish for you is that you get to go commercial and everybody could just get your ice cream everywhere so you can get us at uh, our cafe and observatory oh perfect at the moment 76 yes. lower main road that's yes. our only spot there's and a restaurant called mama observatory Africa. in cape town not, not Joburg. Joburg, yes. <laughs> we have to remind yeah. everybody yes <laughs> and there's one restaurant in cape town called mama africa yes um we have our ice cream on their menu as well because we're doing similar work and i value what they're doing yes. for the cause so yes. i supply them as well how thing here we come. Thank One you day. so so much, <laughs> Tapiwa Kuza. It's just after 1.30.